welcome to another uh, Paris seminar. Uh, this month, I want to look at the theme of the holy. And I want to do that for a couple of different reasons. The first reason is because I'm on tour at the moment with Rob Bell, uh, a tour called Holy Shift. And it's going to last the entire year. Uh, we're doing maybe 35, 40 cities across America. Uh, then Rob's also doing the UK and we'll likely do a little bit of Canada as well. And so the theme of the holy, you know, is something I've been thinking about. Uh, but also, and more fundamentally, I want to explore it because uh, certain thinkers, particularly within liberal theology, um, this is one of the, the good size, sides of liberal theology, I think, um, have understood the holy as actually the core of religion that religion is not primarily a rational position or an intellectual position, but it is a response to a feeling, a certain type of feeling. And that feeling has been called the holy. So I want to look at that. And then I want to connect it actually with um, uh, some, some of my work, but particularly um, uh, the idea of the unconscious. So I want to I actually show how the, the idea of the holy can illuminate what the unconscious means. Uh, and also, because I want a practical dimension to this, uh, what it might mean uh, positively in our lives to open ourselves up to or to remain sensitive to the notion of the holy. Uh, what, what can it do practically in our individuals, in individual lives, in our, in our political lives? So we're going to try and cover all of that. Um, as always, these seminars are, you know, things that I'm reflecting on. So there, we're, we're just going to see where, where this whole stuff takes us. But one of the books that I am relying on kind of quite heavily is a classic text called The Idea of the Holy by Rudolf Otto. And I really recommend it. It's a book. You can get it free online. And uh, it's short, and especially the first five chapters, which will only take you an hour to read. I mean, they're short, short chapters, uh, like blog posts, um, will really give you a powerful sense of what this notion holy actually kind of refers to and means. Um, so what I want to do is start with a weird um, saying, something that Luther said, when he said that only, basically, the, he calls it the natural man cannot experience the fear of God. Pretty much right. The natural man cannot experience the fear of God, and by natural man, you can think of you can think of that in terms of the mundane life, the, the humanity in its everyday form. You know, as we go along in our everyday lives, uh, in our natural state, we have no understanding of or experience of the fear of God. But to experience the fear of God is to be kind of homo-religious, is to be a religious subject. Now, what's interesting about this is it completely turns on its head what we would assume. Like, you'll hear people within churches, for example, saying that, you know, you should fear God, and then the fear of God will make you religious. As in, you know, maybe you fear hell, or you fear that God is going to judge you, or is disappointed in you, is displeased with you. And that fear of the Almighty kind of puts you onto your knees. And so interestingly, like the common sense notion is that 
you fear God uh, until you enter into the spiritual life. Uh, and then you can feel confident um, in kind of your security before God, right? So Luther turns that completely on his head and says, no, 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 it's when you fear God that you are a religious subject, that you're in the heart of religion. And what's what <clears throat> everything I'm going to say in this next hour is going to pull that apart and try to uh, understand it. And obviously I'm not going to take um, a very confessional way of looking at it, but I want to take the logic and, and unpack the logic. So the first thing is, what does fear mean? Now, this is where Rudolf Otto is important, is that in the Hebrew scriptures, fear of the Lord isn't what we mean by that word today. Uh, to fear something is to fear something, right? You, you're frightened of something. You're frightened of losing your job, losing your money, losing your health. You're afraid of heights or whatever it is. You're afraid of something concrete. Uh, you can be afraid of the police, afraid of a judge, afraid of an army. But within um, kind of the Hebrew scriptures, there's this notion of uh, a tremor, uh, 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 what could you call it? This type of shuddering in your body that results from an encounter with the mysterious other. And it's different from fear because it's not a fear of something. It's in a sense, a confrontation with what could be described as nothingness. Um, in the Buddhist sense or in the Christian mystical sense that you call it nothing because in comparison to everything, it is nothing. It is, it is that which cannot be named, cannot be articulated, but, but leaves its mark in your body. Uh, so it's, it's this tremor that this, this ominous feeling. Um, and for Rudolf Otto, he calls this, he, he kind of coins this term numinous, that at the core of religion is an experience of the numinous. And the numinous, obviously, kind of, it derives from the same root as ominous. So there is weirdly at the core of religion, this, experience, this ominous experience of a numinous mystery. Uh, and that's what fear of the Lord kind of is. So when Luther says, you, properly speaking, fear of God is what defines you as a religious subject, what he's kind of saying is that this experience of the noumenal realm, this, this shuddering in your body, and actually I was noting some of the words that Rudolf Otto uses, which are great. Um, let's see. Uh, this specter of this, uh, this eerie dread he talks about, this spectral kind of weirdness. He talks about awe and awfulness. So, the, you know, the idea of this awe, but this awe that is awful, that, that kind of disturbs your everyday reality. Um, and like Rudolf Otto, he's saying that the problem with psychology at his time was psychology didn't have any ability to really distinguish between fear and this anxiety, which are for him qualitatively different things, right? So it's not just that you have fear of a, a wild animal and you also have this shuddering in your body um, that, you, that, that doesn't seem to have an object. He says, no, they're, they're completely different things. 
and he says the science of psychology <clears throat> hasn't been able to distinguish them <clears throat> and the religious subject is the one who has experienced this latter anxiety this angst this dread <clears throat> that that rumbles within their being um, and actually Otto says like if you haven't experienced that he says don't read my book right? he says you won't understand it you won't get it if, if this is not an experience that you have felt in some way then in a sense you're not going to get anything out of the text the text is really for people who have experienced something of this in some kind of way um, and he, he calls this supra-rational or non-rational, but he doesn't mean that, um, <clears throat> he doesn't mean that this is better than reason. Like uh, Rudolf Otto was very much a, a, a man of reason, a man of learning, and he wrote a lot uh, in terms of the, the rational side of religion. <clears throat> but uh, Ultimately, he's saying, but that the core of religion is something that is supra-rational. And rationality can revolve around it, can help us in some ways uh, conceptualize it, but can never nail it down. Um, and he, he, he's very clear in saying, no, I don't think that this is an excuse not to read and not to think. In fact, it's the opposite. This supra-rational uh, foundation of religion is the very thing that inspires us to read more, to think more, to that that inspires our imagination, um, that that creates beautiful poetry, but also um, systematic philosophy. Um, so he's not kind of when he talks about the super rational, he's he is talking about something that is more basic than the rational, something that can't be contained by the rational but also not something that undermines the rational, uh, not something that means that we can just turn away from the rational and forget about it. In fact, the idea of the holy is a beautifully intelligent and thoughtful and carefully crafted book about the limits of reason and rationality itself. <clears throat> he said that if you, if you completely reject reason, you will be left with silence. And he says that the mystics, who are the ones who really at the most extreme enter into this experience of the holy uh they don't remain in silence they are some of the most he has a term for it, copious uh vocabulary or something like that but he says that they're always talking <laughs> they're always speaking about what they cannot speak of so the the unnameable is only nameable it, it, it evokes all of this rational discourse <clears throat> but Rudolf Otto was ultimately saying that you cannot understand religion if you think that religion is a rationalization of our being in the world, if you think it's purely like evolved from some primitive fears or desires. Uh, Otto was saying actually religion at its core is a response to and an attempt to remain faithful to and an attempt to remain sensitive to this holy fear. Uh, now, this puts him into conflict with Schleimacher. Uh, Schleimacher is a great theologian who, who was doing something similar to Otto, and Otto respects him for that and says, like, I'm, you know, I'm close to Schleimacher, and this Schleimacher says that religion is based 
on a feeling of absolute dependence. So the religious subject is the one who, not as a theist or anything like that, but just feels an absolute dependence on something other. Uh, and Rudolf Otto kind of like critiques this for like two primary reasons. Uh, one, very clever, he just simply says, well, you know, the feeling of absolute dependence uh, isn't necessarily a religious thing. I mean, a child feels that in relation to their parents. A prisoner might feel that in relation to the prison guards. Uh, a, a, a student, a, a pupil might feel it in relation to their teachers. Uh, you know, a, a subjects might feel that in relation to an authoritarian or totalitarian government. So the feeling of absolute dependence is not necessarily a good thing and it's not necessarily a religious thing. Now Schleimacher understood that and Schleimacher, <clears throat> his response was, well, it's not just an absolute dependence in terms of like somebody who um, is controlling you. Uh, it's kind of an absolute dependence at the very core of everything. So it's not just one element of your life. Uh, you're dependent, you feel absolutely dependent on your parents because maybe they won't feed you or shelter you. But it's a feeling that every part of you is dependent on something other. But uh, Otto kind of goes, well, but that's not extreme enough. That's just turning it up to 11. Um, rather, Otto wants to say that what Schleimacher is getting at, but hasn't quite articulated, is is that, um, oh yeah, it's not that we feel simply absolute dependence, it's that we feel our creatureliness, we feel our finitude, we feel our contingency, we feel um, that we are like a, a, a leaf in the wind, here for a moment, right? we're, 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 we're just passing through, we're a mist, and it's this experience, uh, but not just that experience, because this is a second kind of concern with Schleimacher is he says, the other thing is that the feeling of absolute dependence is purely subjective. So, you know, you feel absolutely dependent and then maybe you postulate something out there that you're absolutely dependent upon. But um, Otto wants to close that gap. And he wants to say that the feeling of absolute dependence is inherently connected to the feeling that there is some other out there in some sort of way. So he uses the term mysterium tremendum. So the core of religion and religious experience for him is not the feeling of absolute dependence. It is the feeling of mysterium tremendum. And we're going to unpack that. Because a third reason why um, I think he's concerned with Schleimacher, but this is more my critique than his critique, but I think it's in there is that uh, I actually think that the religion is the opposite of the feeling of absolute dependence. Um, that the true religious experience is the feeling of radical contingency and freedom, that you are cut loose from dependence on some big other. And I think this is more in line with Otto, although it's not in auto directly, you have to push him to get it, but it's more in line with auto than it is with Schleimacher. Because what auto is going to say is our experience of the holy is the experience of this, this dread that we experience in relation to a mystery. 
So in other words, you're not dependent on something necessarily. You're more just shaken to your core and you have to kind of work with and deal with that, with that shaking of the foundations of your being. Um, <clears throat> now, holy is, is often connected with good. So whenever someone is holy, you think of them as good or saintly. But Otto draws out how that's a later addition to the holy, that it is part of the holy. Um, and it is connected, but at its, at its most basic, ho- the, what's distinctive about the notion of holy is not that it's, a, it's connected with ethics or morality. It's primarily connected with this disturbance in the force, right? So it's a, you know, in, in the Star Wars universe, it is actually on the side of the evil because Star Wars is a pagan universe where balance and harmony and order are primary so disturbance to that order is seen as evil and bad um but within the universe of the holy it's the other way around the holy is actually the disturbance of harmony the disturbance of uh wholeness um in your in your body um and so we'll take each each term of mysterium and tremendum i uh, will take tremendum first for tremendum we've already kind of covered it that is the tremor the tremor that disturbs you, that's not connected to some concrete fear. It might be uh, reduced to a concrete fear, but it is this anxiety that you feel in your being um, that is all-encompassing and that, that, that gets in the way of your everyday life. And the mysterium is the source of that tremor. The mysterium is a word that is given to that other that you encounter. Um, now, the, 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 it's called Mysterium because it's a mystery. And what Otto wants to do is he, 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 he kind of goes, right, we have to understand what mystery is. And he uses three ways of understanding it. He says, well, a mystery might be something like you don't understand how a television works. So it's a mystery to you. And I, so I don't understand how a television works. That is a mystery. But it's only a mystery in principle. If I spent enough time studying um, engineering and uh, various aspects of technology, I could work out how televisions work. So it's a provisional mystery. And uh, he wants to say that's not worthy of the term mystery. That's more of a problem, a problem to solve. And actually, um, the philosopher Gabriel Marcel makes a very important distinction between mystery and problem. A problem is a scientific issue. You know, you, have, you don't know how something works. It's a problem that you can solve. But mystery is, re, is reserved for something else. So then Otto says, okay, well, what about uh, something that I would never understand? So it's not just that I don't understand how a television works because I haven't studied it. But maybe there is, you know, advanced mathematical formulas uh, advanced understandings of physics that just I would never understand or no human being would ever understand. Uh, in principle, it's understandable, but just never to us. We don't have the mental abilities to actually understand them. Um, uh, even something like the internet you know, might, might be that where so many minds have come together to create something that maybe no individual could fully understand or recreate. Uh, 
uh, I don't know if that's the case or not with the internet, but I'm guessing it probably is, is that you could get coding so advanced that no individual could understand it or could recreate it. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a mystery um, in the sense of we will never, as an individual, be able to understand it. We can participate in it, as in we can use the internet, but we'll never be able to uh, fully grasp it. But again, Otto was like, no, that's not what we mean by Mysterium. It is wholly other. So the, the next level is a mystery that is never knowable because it is not at the level of epistemology. It's not something that if we had a big enough brain and enough time, we would understand it. It is an encounter with something that is at the source of all rationality, but cannot be understood rationally. Uh, it is trans-rational. And that, that's what he means by the mysterium. The mysterium is a positivization of a negative. It is putting a word on our ignorance and making our ignorance into something. But it's, it's doing that purposefully. So the word God functions like that for many people. The word God is an ignorance that is covered over. So whenever we say like, how did, you know, why did it rain at that time? Or, you know, why did that army win? Somebody might say, well, God did it. Uh, and that sounds like knowledge. That sounds like an explanation. But actually, it's the God of the gaps. It's, it's covering over something that we don't know with a word. Uh, and then we think that that is knowledge rather than the absence of knowledge being hidden by a signifier. But for auto Mysterium is doing exactly the same thing, but acknowledging it. So when we talk about the Mysterium, we are saying, yes, we are encountering something that is actually beyond us. Uh, and that's why the mystics call it nothingness. It's, it's kind of to us, it is a nothingness. It is a gap. It is a, a, a fracture in reality that we can never hold or capture. And this mysterium connects with the tremendum and the tremendum connects with the mysterium. And this is the religious experience and everything else kind of arises from it. And at its worst, religion covers over that, hides it, reduces it to superstition, uh, reduces it to God as a kind of like a guy in the sky. Uh, but at its best, religion points to this, invites us into it, remains faithful to it. So that's Otto. And Otto, by the way, I think he, he tried to be a, a minister, but they wouldn't take him because um, uh, they thought he was too liberal or something. So, uh, you know, Otto is not, He's not writing as a confessional theologian here. He's writing about something that he feels is at the core of religion that should be expressed within it. But actually, um, uh, as I say, he didn't get a job because he wasn't orthodox enough. So uh, uh, I don't know whether he would think this or not, but you could say a lot of confessional religion um, is not, is not uh, designed to help us experience this but actually to cover it over, right? Which is, the, which is weird at first when you think of that, actually religion is designed to shore up defenses against the dread and the tremor and the shuddering um, of this mystery. That actually the fear of God is the very thing that religion in its confessional form is designed to protect us against. 
Whereas for Luther and for Otto, it's the opposite. Religion, weirdly, is what's designed to help us experience what is, you know, theologically called the fear of God, but which Otto calls the mysterium tremendum, the, the uh, holy dread, this awfulness that provides awe. Uh, notions of ghosts, by the way, is like a, he calls it a, degrada degrada a degradation of this notion where, you know, because a ghost is the presence of an absence. You don't, so you don't fear ghosts like you fear a lion. C.S. Lewis talks about this. It's, it's kind of different because a, a ghost is not going to eat you. Uh, but a ghost creates a sense of like, a, you know, a, a type of fear that is closer to the holy than fear of a lion. And so whenever people are scared of ghosts, they often experience this type of, this type of awe and awfulness and enjoyment sometimes, you know, like a good ghost story um, can kind of like kind of scare us and excite us at the same time. So it, that's kind of analogous to what the holy means, um, uh, kadosh in, the, in kind of the Hebrew, this, 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 this kind of like awesome, uh, inspiring and yet frightening mode of existence uh, that we actually try to protect ourselves from, but but actually we need to perhaps uh, open ourselves up to. Um, now, I'm saying all of this because <laughs> this actually can help us understand what the unconscious is, right? Uh, Otto's writing before all of the major insights and developments in the uh, Freudian unconscious. But what he's talking about is, is basically what Freud is talking about. Now, I think this is religion at its best. Um, and religious theory has given us some incredible insights. But one of them, I think, is this, 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 this parsing out of the difference between fear and anxiety, the difference between um, everyday natural fears that we have and this kind of confrontation with a mystery that is inherently other, right? That's, so some religious thinkers have beautifully articulated an important difference there that is taken on within the 20th century within existentialism and within like psychoanalysis. And in psychoanalysis, the unconscious is a mysterium tremendum. It is this tremor at the core of our being that is fundamentally mysterious, that cannot be grasped, but, but is felt, that, that goes through us like a, like a shuddering of our skin. And the, 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 the common sense notion of the unconscious is that the, the, what's unconscious is what we've hidden from ourselves. Uh, you know, if I, like, I'm angry at my boss, but I, I have to hide that because if I'm angry at my boss, if I show that, I'll get fired. So I push it down, I repress it, it becomes unconscious, and then it erupts in my anger at my partner or my friends, right? So that's kind of like the common sense notion of the unconscious, which basically means that if I'm reflective enough, I can bring those ideas to the surface. If I sit and think about it, I go, yeah, you know what? I exploded in rage at my friends, but actually I'm angry at my boss. And so what you've done is you've, you've taken the thing that you've repressed and you've brought it up to the surface. And you know, that's a positive thing. Now, it is true 
that that is connected to the unconscious. That is part of kind of what we might call the unconscious. But at its most precise, the unconscious is not something that we've repressed. It is repression itself. It is, it is this lack, this gap, this fissure, this fracture in reality itself um, that, that manifests in all sorts of ways. So kind of technically, you can never bring the unconscious to consciousness. You can never kind of bring this repressed stuff all up and kind of be free from the unconscious. The unconscious continues to exist. And Freud called this primal repression. So there's secondary repression, which is to say, I'm angry at my, my mother, but I take it out on my brother, right? Uh, but then there's primary repression, which is, uh, it sounds weird at first, but I've talked about this in other seminars, uh, the notion that in order to become human, there has to be a fundamental lack, a fundamental uh, gap in the core of our being. Um, think about it like language, right? What is language? Language words are strings of what's called signifiers. There's, there are these strings of signs, but when you put them together, they become meaningful, right? But every word in and of itself isn't meaningful. If it, language is like a dictionary. So you look in a dictionary and every word is defined by other words. And then you can look up the other words in the dictionary and those words are defined by other words. So there's never a word that is the thing that it describes. Words are connections to other words or connections to other words. So words never give you anything. <laughs> but in this movement from one word to the next, these strings meaning arises. So this, there is a lack at the core of language. There is this kind of, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. This word is defined by these words. And then every one of those words is defined by other words, which are defined by other words. So there's this just, this uh, matrix, this constellation of signs and symbols that in and of themselves all point to something else, all lack something, but that lack generates meaning. And in the same way to be human is to experience a lack between myself and you, right? There's an inner world, there's an outer world, there's a me, there's a not me. If I didn't experience that lack, I would have no me. The, the, me, uh, the very fact that I can say I assumes a lack, a, a gap. Uh, and then there's a gap within us that I am not who I think I am. So there's all of these lacks that are part of what it means to be human. And uh, the unconscious, in a sense, is the name for that lack. That then is expressed in all sorts of ways. And what happens in life is that this fundamental lack that we have connects with something. So, for example, we might think that eating will make us happy or having money or something will, will take away that lack. Um, and we'll repress certain things and we'll, we'll engage in all of that behavior. But all of that points to something that is fundamentally a mysterium tremendum that, that, that remains throughout our lives. It is, it is more in us than ourselves, and yet it is wholly other. Right? That's what you know, Jung means when he says there is another 
within us that we do not know, right? Um, this, this other, there's an otherness to us. But unlike Jung, this otherness is, uh, is fundamental. You can never get to know this other, this, this lack, this gap at the core of our being. So the reason why I'm saying all of this is actually the confessional religious notion of the holy is that it is the experience of a confrontation with some otherness that is out there in the world. And the psychoanalytic understanding is no, the, the transcendent other is within us. There is something of the transcendent that cracks us open, that breaks us apart, that disturbs our everyday lives. And what unifies the two is both for Otto and for kind of a, a Freudian, um, the idea is not to get rid of the mysterium tremendum, right? So in religion, the idea is to protect yourself from this dread, this holy dread, through all these rituals and whatever, right? When the true religious idea is to help you live with it, bear the weight of it, transform it into something positive, affirm it, and enjoy it, right? In psychoanalysis, again, you've got the two things. You've got a lot of counseling is designed to help get rid of your anxiety, help get rid of this tension in your life, the fears that you have, the anxieties, the angst, the dread that you have. But proper psychoanalysis is designed to help you affirm that mysterium tremendum, to enjoy it, to use it for transformative purposes. Right? That actually the problems arise from the attempt to escape from it. And so in relation to pyrotheology, um, pyrotheology is the attempt to do exactly that. In terms of the sacred, it is helping institutions uh, <clears throat> not shore up defenses against the holy, but to enjoy it, to appreciate it, to find its potential. So for example, like I used the example of ghosts. You might be so afraid of ghosts that you can't sleep at night. Every time the light's out, you don't believe in ghosts, but you do, you know, right? Every time the lights are out, you think there's something under the bed. You worry there's something next door. You hear a creak and you think something's coming to get you. Right? That's a very negative experience of ghosts. <laughs> but you could also like really love the ghost stories and you read about them and it, they kind of, they frighten you, but also they excite your imagination. They get you write books on it. You, uh, you write a novel. It's a ghost story. You make a movie, right? That's where the Mysterium Tremendum becomes productive. So that's a sacred dimension. And in the secular dimension, it's the same thing. Uh, most of secular society is designed to protect you from the holy, right? It's designed to shore up your defenses against it, to say that it doesn't exist, to rule it out, to have cognitive therapies that just say, oh, you know, it's a um, it's a nothingness, right? You know, it's just, you gotta, you gotta like make concrete changes to your thinking in order to kind of like, you know, function better in society. Um, to kind of the ideas that if you do the right, uh, you know, you, you look the right way, have enough money, have the right job, you can get rid of this. But uh, parotheology is also in a, in a secular way is designed to actually help you confront the holy, confront it in a way that you find transformative and powerful and good. So 
that's again how I'm going to connect the sacred and the secular. There is a negative sacred and a negative secular, which is designed to protect you from the numinous, the ominous numinous, the, the uh, ominous mysterium tremendum. And there are sacred and secular practices that are designed to help you face it, confront it, find beauty and power in the midst of it. Right. And that's, that's something that I'm trying to explore in the Holy Shift tour with Rob. And, I, and it's also, it's in his work. I mean, his talk uh, on the Holy Shift tour is an, is, is an exploration of the enjoyment of this uh, traumatic um, experience in, in, your, in your being. Um, and my work in, on, the, on the tour is to connect that with this more 20th and 21st century notion of uh, the unconscious. So, okay, now I'm going to look, see if you've got any questions um, uh, in any of that. Let's see, where's the Q&A box? Okay. Uh, there are no questions there, so I'm going to um, assume that all of that was as clear as day. Uh, I'll finish off with a couple of thoughts then. I'd really recommend that you get Rudolf Otto's uh, The Idea of the Holy. You can either buy a crisp new copy uh, on, Amazon, <clears throat> on Amazon or at good bookshops. That will give you a good introduction, etc. Or there's um, free it's it's in the it's in the free domain so you can also get a copy of it online and i would really recommend that you read that book um and also maybe something on the unconscious so you can see how there is this really interesting connection between this religious writing and some of the great insights uh, from kind of existentialism and psychoanalysis. Because again, this is, I, I say this a lot, but it's uh, whenever you break the world down into kind of the religious and the not religious, and uh, one side doesn't read the other, both sides are impoverished, right? Like I would recommend anybody who has no interest in religion at all, but has an interest in the unconscious, for example, to read the idea of the holy. I think they will find it enriching and beautiful. And likewise, people who are religious and who have read, you know, auto, you know, I go like, well, then you know, delve into um, kind of some of the some of the real interesting insights in Sartre or in Freud, and uh, you'll find that that also illuminates and enriches some of the some of the religious work. So I would do that, but I hopefully what I've done here is I've clarified a little bit of what the holy means. That for Otto, it is the foundation of the religious experience. Um, it has these two dimensions, this encounter with the holy other that, that disrupts and distorts our everyday existence. That um, re religion at its worst covers over this, but at its best, draws us into this, that the mystics are the kind of the, the ones who kind of try to delve most deeply into this experience and that it is supra rational, but that doesn't mean it's irrational. Um, uh, it's actually rationality is important um, to help prevent us becoming superstitious, to help kind of like a, kind of create a map of this weird territory to kind of like draw 
um, a form around this nothingness uh, to help us appreciate it, remain true to it, um, and not kind of like uh, close ourselves off from it. So that is the holy. The reason why I call the seminar whole or holy <clears throat> is because the traditional sense of the holy is that it's a harmony, it's a wholeness. But actually, I think a truer understanding of the holy is that it's holy, H-O-L-E-Y. It's, it's what punches gaps into our being. It's what um, kind of fractures us like an earthquake breaking the, the ground. Um, it, and that probably you know, creates lava and all of that, but also then fertilizes the earth. <clears throat> um, that the holy is, this, is better understood as this kind of like unconscious kind of like uh, inner tremor that is more in us than ourselves. Um, that, that actually, if we don't run from it, but we somehow embrace it, we somehow kind of like allow it to be part of our everyday lives, will actually be powerful and productive um, and uh, will enrich our experience of existence and uh, enrich the sense of depth and density of life before we die. Okay, thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you got something from that. Uh, if you're doing my book study on uh, my search for absolutes, I'll be talking to you very soon. Otherwise, um, I will uh, think about the next Paro seminar, uh, uh, which I'll be doing in uh, June. All right, take care. Bye-bye.